History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spectacular people welcome to this 306 episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane we have another one of our haunted cemetery episodes here i know it's a lot of your favorites to go into these cemeteries and find out if we've got any spirits and we have a handful of them here for you in haunted cemeteries number 14 we're going to be popping all around america to hit these different places but before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Teresa with an H, Heather, Jessica, David, Jojo, Deborah with an A-H, Brianna, Danielle, Angelica, Tammy, Kara with a C, Ashley, Felipe, Samantha, and Sarah with an H. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment naughty. Markawasi is known as Peru's mysterious stone forest. This is a plateau in the Andes Mountains that dominates the landscape, standing over 13,000 feet. The area was first explored by Daniel Ruzo in the 1950s, and he revealed that this place has several hundred rock formations that look like they were carved rather than just naturally formed. These shapes seem to resemble religious symbols, human faces, and animals. There are many archaeologists who claim that these shapes are just the result of volcanic reactions in the region and erosion. But does that really explain how it's possible for there to be shapes that resemble elephants, camels, frogs, winged sphinxes, and human profiles? If these are man-made, what makes them even more unusual is that many of the figures resemble things that people who lived here centuries ago would know nothing about. The different human profiles have indications of different races, and there's a massive structure that's been called the Monument to Humanity. Many theories have developed as to how these mysterious stones came to be, and of course, ancient alien theorists believe that they were created by extraterrestrials. Others believe that ancient people in the area created them centuries ago. Whatever theory is true, they certainly are odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In the month of August, on the 2nd in 1100, King William II dies while hunting, and some believe it was an assassination. William II was the third son of William the Conqueror and took the throne in 1087. He ruled for 13 years as a good ruler who was victorious many times in battle, but he also seemed to lead a life of vice with no social graces, and the church thought of him as wicked. 
the king had gone out into the new forest with several of his men to do some hunting. One of these men was Walter Tyrell. Tyrell saw a stag in the distance and he lined up his arrow to take a shot. While accidents do happen, I can't imagine how he managed to hit the king rather than the deer, but he did, right in the chest, puncturing the king's lung. As the king lay dying and the noblemen all fled from him, I wonder if he thought about the letter of warning he'd received from the abbot of Gloucester, warning him that a monk had seen a vision of him dying on the hunt. A peasant was the one to find the body, and the king's younger brother Henry was quick to grab the throne, even before the archbishop could arrive. This has caused some to believe that this was no accident, but rather an assassination. Having a final resting place is important, not only on a sociological level, but clearly spiritually. I surmise this based on the fact that so many hauntings seem to be connected to improper burial. How many times have we heard that people were just thrown in a mass grave and now we have a whole bunch of spirits like on a battlefield or somebody was murdered and their body was buried somewhere in a grave in the woods or something and we've got a haunting going on there. Or people were dug up and moved to a different cemetery, but not everybody was moved. We hear all kinds of stories about that. Socially, we need a place to memorialize our lost loved ones, not only for us emotionally, but historically. This person buried here lived once. That's what a tombstone is proof of, and that's why I think they're so important. But do emotions carry across the veil? Why is it important to a spirit that their body have a proper final resting place? I know why we as humans need closure, but why does the spirit need the closure? Have you guys ever asked yourself that question? Why is it that there's a spirit hanging around their dead body? Like they need somebody to give them permission that they can go or they don't realize they're dead. I really don't understand why it seems they need some kind of closure here. So that's just one of many questions I ask myself as I study the paranormal. When we look at haunted graveyards, that question stands out even more to me. Why are there ghosts or at least unexplained things happening in cemeteries? Can we find answers in the history, in the stories? We're up to episode 14 of these haunted cemeteries, and I don't know that I'm any closer to answers to those questions. One thing that is very clear, though, is that cemeteries are very important. Join me as we explore Elkhart Cemetery in Illinois, Dawson Cemetery in New Mexico, Lone Fir Cemetery in Oregon, Spidergate Cemetery in Massachusetts, and Oakwood Cemetery in Texas. we have Elkhart Cemetery. This was suggested by listener Jim Featherstone, and it's found in Elkhart, Illinois. And the origin of the name is an interesting story. The Kickapoo tribe had lived on the land here, and the chief had a daughter named White Blossom. She was very beautiful and had won the hearts of two men, one from her tribe and the other from the Shawnee tribe. 
She loved both and couldn't decide whom to marry. The men insisted she make a choice. At that moment, an elk came into the ravine where they were standing, and White Blossom said, The one who can pierce the heart of the elk will be my husband. The man from her tribe pierced the heart of the elk. They were married and took the elk's heart as their family badge, and that is where the name Elkhart comes from. Or at least, that's what the legend claims. Elkhart Cemetery sits on a hill that was first settled by James Latham and covers 700 acres with beautiful woods and gardens. Latham was in the area serving as an Indian agent at Fort Clark, which is now Peoria. He wouldn't hold the position long as he took ill and died only two years later, and his body was buried here near his cabin. This cemetery would be named for him Latham Cemetery, and it's today just east of Elkhart Cemetery. So if you're going to visit one of them, you might as well visit both of them. The next settler to live here was cattle baron John Dean Gillette, and he owned a ton of land and built a beautiful home on the hill that is today a bed and breakfast, I believe, is what I saw on the internet, and it looks like a beautiful home. Gillette owned a lot of land, and when a need for a new cemetery arose, he offered up a portion of this land that was known as Gillette Grove. Now, before you get to thinking, wow, that's really altruistic of that guy, it really wasn't. He was looking to make a little bit of a profit here, and he did make a tidy profit selling off these lots. Gillette is buried here in the cemetery. His wife, Lermira, built a chapel in the grove in 1890 after he had died. It's called Chapel of St. John the Baptist and is the only privately owned chapel in the state of Illinois. Eventually, the cemetery took on the name Elkhart. There are a couple of other notable burials here. The first is for Governor Richard Oglesby, who got into politics after the Civil War. He became governor of Illinois in 1869 and was re-elected in 1873, but apparently Congress looked more interesting to him, so he resigned only eight days after that so that he could be elected as senator. So he served as a senator for six years, and then he went back to being a governor in 1882 and won for the third time there. He built his home on Elkhart Hill and called it Oglehurst. This was a 50-room mansion. He didn't live here long as he died eight years later in 1899. His funeral was held in the chapel in the cemetery, and his body was then placed in the vault in the chapel while his mausoleum was built. I had nothing to do with that. I know, more. you weren't alive back then. That was 1899, a long time ago. The structure was finished in a month and was made from solid concrete and stands 24 feet high. And about half of it is underground, and there's 18-inch thick walls here. I found it interesting that there was that much of the mausoleum that was underground. The original doors were antique bronze with glass inserts, but they were stolen in 1986 and considered worth $20,000. One door was recovered, but never stood at the mausoleum again. I think they found it in a field or something. I'm like, if you're going to steal it, at least do something with it. Don't just toss it into a field. Today, the doors are iron bars with amber-colored glass. The glass has also, unfortunately, suffered vandalism. Ogilby's wife and son are buried in the mausoleum along with him. Captain Adam Borgadus is also buried here, and he was an expert marksman. He was so good that he was hired to tour with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show as the main shooting act. And there are claims that the only marksman that was better than him was Annie Oakley. I think I would have loved to watch the two of them have a shooting contest. She would replace him when he left the tour after three years because of what we would today call, quote-unquote, creative differences. So I don't know what he and Buffalo Bill didn't agree on, but he decided he was going to leave. 
Another claim to fame for him is that he developed a form of trap shooting that shot glass balls as targets. This was a precursor to the clay discs that were developed in 1880 that are now used in trap shooting. I can imagine that it's far better to be shooting at a clay disc than a glass ball. I don't know how big these were, but can you imagine shards of glass flying every direction? I mean, I guess clay flying every direction can get dangerous too, but what are the hauntings that we have going on in Elkhart Cemetery? Miss and full-bodied apparitions have been reported here. There was a picture taken of something that looks like a swirling vortex. The main haunting here has been credited to the wife of Governor Oglesby. Her spirit has been seen sitting outside of the Oglesby mausoleum, which I find really weird because I don't know why she would be outside of it. I mean, she was buried with her husband, so I don't know if this is like her coming to visit residually before she died and was buried in the mausoleum. But one thing that makes me think that maybe it's not necessarily residual is that we have another story that goes with her ghost, and it's a really strange story. There is this claim that a group of Native American spirits will come into the cemetery, and when they see her spirit outside of the mausoleum, they'll chase her away, and she runs across a nearby bridge. As to why we have this interaction going on, I don't know. Is this a whole residual thing we're seeing going on? Her hanging out outside of the mausoleum and then this Native American tribe chasing her off? But I can't imagine why they would be doing that in the time period in which she lived. I, I just don't understand why they would be chasing her off of the cemetery or the land or what's going on here. It almost seems like it's an intelligent thing. But since it repeats, it also makes me think it's residual. So I'm not really sure. But I found it to be a very strange story. There's also a legend about a path that leads outside of the cemetery into the forest. This legend claims that you will see shadow figures, feel like you're being watched, and hear disembodied voices as you travel up the path. Once you hit the top of the hill, there's a fork in the path, and if you choose the wrong one, they say you will never find your way back out. So maybe don't walk on the path outside of the cemetery. Just a little tip. You certainly don't want to go on the path less chosen, I guess because you may not come back. Next up, we have Dawson Cemetery, and this is located in New Mexico. It's said to be one of the most haunted locations in New Mexico. The graveyard is basically all that is left of a town called Dawson that was named for the rancher who'd owned the land here, John Barkley Dawson. The town formed around a coal mine industry that started in 1901. The Phelps Dodge Company came into Dawson and bought the mines that numbered around 10 and turned the city basically into what I would call a company town. They don't describe it that way, but that's what it sounds like to me. They came in and built a whole bunch of homes for people who were going to be working there. They put in a school, a hospital, a theater, and pretty soon it even had its own newspaper. Things were good until tragedy struck in 1913. On October 22nd, there was an explosion in a mine that killed 263 miners. That's big. We hear about explosions in our modern day, and what the one of them had 33 miners trapped. Can you imagine an explosion that kills 263? During a rescue attempt, two rescuers also lost their lives. Tragedy struck again in 1923 when another mine suffered an explosion. This time, 120 men were killed. So at this point, you have almost 400 miners who have died in two mine explosions in 10 years. That's a bit much. But that didn't stop the mines from continuing to go on. They continued. Eventually, they were shut down in 1950, and then the town just died. And part of the reason why this town just died is that the Phelps Dodge Company sold off the whole town 
basically bit by bit. They sold off this building and then that building and they were all kind of carried away. So today Dawson is a ghost town and all that really exists here is the cemetery. And while this is a cemetery outside of a ghost town, which you would imagine would be kind of small and not have much going on in there, this is a packed full cemetery because, as I said, we almost had 400 miners die here. So the cemetery is full of Iron Cross markers. These mark the final resting places of the miners who were killed. And since these miners died in tragic circumstances, many people believe that their souls are at unrest disembodied voices are heard throughout the graveyard. People who visit the cemetery have claimed to see strange lights. And the way that I've heard this described, if you can imagine for a moment, looking out into the cemetery, I can imagine it would be, you know, twilight, dusk, and you see these lights moving about in the cemetery, kind of like little ball orbs, all about head height. Could it be that we are seeing miners with their headlamps on in the cemetery and these are the strange lights that people are seeing? Full-bodied apparitions and shadowy figures have been seen as well. Next up, we have Lone Fur Cemetery, and this was suggested by listener Casey Callahan. This cemetery is located in Portland, Oregon. Lone Fur Cemetery is gorgeous and just screams Pacific Northwest. There are so many trees here that the graveyard is considered the city's second largest arboretum. The cemetery is located at Southeast 26th Avenue and Southeast Washington Street and is on land that was originally owned by B. Stevens and run as a farm. Stevens' father, Emor, died in 1846 and he was buried in a family plot on the farm. This would turn out to be the first burial for Lone Fir Cemetery. Stevens decided to move, but he wouldn't sell unless the buyer agreed to maintain his father's grave. That buyer would be Colburn Barrel, and the purchase was finalized in 1854. Barrel set aside 10 acres of the land for a cemetery the following year, and it was platted as Mount Crawford Cemetery. He had a specific reason for doing this. It wasn't just because he'd made the agreement to maintain Stephen's father's grave. Barrel was a businessman, and he'd invested in a steamship called the Gazelle. In April of 1854, the steamship exploded and it killed 24 of the 50 passengers. Two of the dead were his friends. This was D.P. Fuller and his partner, Crawford Dobbins. He brought the bodies to his property and buried them next to Emore Stevens. And so here we have the start of our cemetery. Mount Crawford would become the main cemetery for Portland as other graveyards were located on marshy land and needed to be closed. Obviously, you don't want bodies hanging around in marshy land. They eventually float to the top. Bodies were reinterred here, and by 1866, the name had changed to Lone Fir, and the cemetery was on 30 acres. That name was inspired by the fact that there used to be one little fir tree here in the northwest corner and was suggested by Beryl's wife, Aurelia. At this same time, Barrel offered the cemetery to the city of Portland, but the city wasn't interested in buying, so a group of Portland families bought it. The name Lone Fir doesn't fit anymore as there are now 67 species of trees covering the landscape. So I thought it's very interesting how this cemetery is called Lone Fir and people probably walk into it and go, what are they talking about? One major issue was that no money had been set aside for perpetual care and the graveyard fell into disrepair. It got really, really overgrown. Several plots had wooden headstones that were now rotted or completely gone. And that being the case, we had nearly 10,000 graves here that are unknown. And to this day, that is still true. 
We have a lot of burials here. People don't even know what's in them, where they're at. So this is going to cause some trouble, obviously. As I was just saying, it seems to be very important that people get a proper burial. And I guess if you don't have a proper marking, that's not really a proper burial. There were also sections for asylum patients here and Chinese immigrants that were largely forgotten. And I can assume that the Chinese have a specific way that you should be buried, and I'm sure that was not followed here. So we've got that going on too. Burials still continue at Lone Fir, and there are around 25,000 burials, making the cemetery the largest of 14 historic cemeteries managed by the Metro Regional Government. A heritage and memorial garden is planned for the forgotten patient and immigrant area, so they're going to make good on those areas for those people. Maybe that'll help get a little bit of the activity we have going on here down a bit. Let's talk about some notable burials here, because they have a whole lot. I love it when outside of a cemetery, they have a little pamphlet that you can grab and walk through and get to know some of the people that are buried there. And even if they don't have them in a little thing outside, usually you can go over to the main office or the sextant's place and maybe pick one up. I really love it when they have this. And what's great about Lone Fur is that they have it posted online. So I could take a little jaunt through this cemetery with a pamphlet kind of virtually. We have Adam Gus Waterford, who was Portland's first African-American firefighter. His family plot had been unmarked, but in 2015, Madison High School students worked to get him a marker from the Portland Fire Department. So bravo to those kids for doing a good thing there. Ada Smith was a six-year-old who died in 1885. She had a beautiful angel statue on her grave, which was stolen 20 years ago. It was eventually found in an abandoned warehouse and was restored and put back on Ada's grave. And I'd really love to know who stole an angel off of the grave of a child. You are a jerk. And then you put it in a warehouse somewhere? What the hell? Alice Oberly was a sex worker who made her way to Madam. When she passed away, her male customers bought her a beautiful monument. Things wouldn't stay that way for very long. Alice's sister would have her body moved to a plot at Mount Calvary Cemetery, and the monument that the Johns had paid for was erased of anything mentioning Alice's work. I thought that was kind of cool, though, of her clientele all pitching in to get her a monument. Asa Lovejoy is buried here. He was a pioneer who later became a politician. He was a founder of Portland and served in various political positions in the region. Dr. James Hawthorne was superintendent at the Oregon Hospital for the Insane and is credited with providing burial for 130 of his patients at Lone Fir. So that area that has the asylum patients, he is the one that bought that area, that plot, and had the people buried there. So I thought even though they were, quote unquote, what would be forgotten and not really maintained, they at least had a nice place to be buried and he footed the bill for that. So that was uh, nice of the doctor to do that. Because as we know, usually what happened is that patients at an asylum would be buried on the property somewhere under a number. Now, I don't know how it is in the cemetery if they have headstones or not for these people and if they're just under numbers too, but I'm hoping that that's not the case and I'm kind of thinking that that's not the case. If anybody's been to Lone Fur, I'd love to know. Are those people buried under their actual headstones with their names and dates and things? Here's my favorite burial, considering that I'm a baseball fan, and it belongs to a man who was a former slave. His given name was George Taylor, with that last name being the family name of his slave owner. Of course, we know in that day and age, that's usually what they did is gave the slaves the name of the owner as their name. He would eventually come to be known 
as Julius Caesar because he loved to give speeches. I think that's great. He just would get out on a train or a bus and he would just tell people these long-winded stories and speeches. He'd go out to the ballpark and go on and on. And so I just thought it was kind of fun that they gave him the nickname of Julius Caesar. And that's who he came to be known as. And that's the name that he's buried under. He loved baseball. Visitors to his headstone immediately see that his love of the game is inscribed right there for all of them to see with the words play ball across the top. There are claims that he actually coined that term. And on the little brochure, it even said that in one of the Ripley's Believe It or Not comic strips back in the 1970s, that they talked about the fact that he coined the term play ball. I thought that was kind of interesting. He'd been a successful businessman, but alcohol got the better of him and he died penniless on the street. His friends pooled money for his memorial. Andrew Johnson and Sarah Frances Wisdom were self-emancipated slaves who opened the first African-American restaurant in Oregon. And when I say they were self-emancipated, you know what I mean. (laughs) They were runaway slaves. And uh, fortunately, they were never copped or captured. I did read a couple of stories that said that the owner of them continued to put ads in the paper looking to get them back, but obviously it never happened. And I think it's really great they were ingenious enough to open up their own restaurant together. There's a marble urn at bartender James Frush's plot that used to sit at Colburn Barrel Saloon. It had been filled with a really popular drink called Tom and Jerry. After Frush's death, the urn would be returned to the bar annually at Christmas to be filled with the drink again. So the urn was there, Frush dies, they take the urn out and put it with his headstone, and then every Christmas they would take it from the cemetery, bring it back into the bar, I'm assuming they cleaned it up before they did this. And they put a bunch of Tom and Jerry in it. And in case you don't know what a Tom and Jerry is, because I didn't, it was created by British journalist Pierce Egan in the 1820s and is a holiday cocktail made from eggnog, rum, and brandy, and it is served hot. Sounds yummy. Also sounds like too much of that would get you sick in a hurry. Charity Lamb is buried here, but she's not notable because she was a pioneer or something. She murdered a husband in 1854. And she did it in front of their children, hitting Nathaniel, her husband, twice in the back of the head with an axe while he regaled the kids with stories. Can you imagine that? He lived for two weeks before succumbing to his injuries. She was the first woman convicted for murder in the Oregon Territory and would get jail time rather than death, although she eventually ended up in Dr. Hawthorne's insane asylum where she died in 1879. The quirkiest headstone or memorial in the cemetery depicts Oregon pioneer James Stevens and his wife Elizabeth. Elizabeth had died in 1887 and he had this memorial carved for her. And it features the couple holding hands, but their faces have a weird, I thought it looked kind of cartoonish look to them. People said the likeness may have been really good, but I don't know. It looked kind of cartoony to me. It just was weird. The back of the memorial features the following statement. Here we lie by consent. After 57 years, two months, and two days, sojourning through life, awaiting nature's immutable laws to return us back to the elements of the universe of which we were first composed. I thought it was interesting that that starts with the line, here we lie by consent. So I'm assuming they're saying that they wanted to be buried there, so they're okay with being buried there. I'm not thinking that they're talking about, yeah, we were okay with dying. I'm not sure, but it's a really fancy way to say ashes to ashes, dust to dust, for sure. But, of course, the cemetery wouldn't be included if it weren't for legends and stories of the unexplained. (laughs) 
Addie Decker's daughter Katie died when she was two. Addie was devastated, and she would visit her daughter's grave regularly. She put up a crib and brought toys. After Addie died, the cradle was left at the plot, and people would see it rocking when nobody was near it, and there was no outside force like wind to cause the movement. People claimed to hear the disembodied laughs of children near Katie's grave. PSU Television is a student-run organization at the university, and they made a video that they put up on YouTube featuring a volunteer named Linda from the Friends of Lone Fur sharing an experience she had at Katie's grave. She had thought the stories were just that, you know, stories, until she'd had this experience for herself. She was in the cemetery one sunny afternoon near the grave and heard the laughter of children for herself. She now claims to be a believer. No one was in the cemetery with her. She heard one toddler belly laugh and then another. Another volunteer named Margaret said that she often feels as though something she can't see is with her in the cemetery. She thinks that's because so many graves here are unmarked, and so there's this sad residual energy and unrest because of that. There are also many Chinese immigrants who were buried here, and their graves were paved over to build an office. So not only is it possible that they weren't buried properly, but those that were buried were just paved right over and put a building on top of you. Now, eventually, many of them were removed and sent over to China. The reports are numerous of people seeing what appear to be apparitions wandering aimlessly among the headstones, you know, as if they're lost. Horror writer Elizabeth Burtis has a website called Living with Ghosts, and she has a post recounting an experience she had at Lone Fur. She writes, As we passed the grave of Millie Harris, I got such an incredibly strong sense of sadness that I couldn't ignore it. The grave was a simple stone headstone, set into the grass, half obscured by mud and vegetation. Nothing fancy or out of the ordinary, except that when I got close, I wanted to cry. Later, Elizabeth wrote that she believed the spirit of Millie had followed her home and that she and her husband had to sage the house to send her back on her way. And Donna Stewart wrote Ghost Hunting Oregon, and she tells a couple of stories that she heard about the cemetery. Two men were walking in the graveyard at night when they saw a figure in the distance. They called out to it and got no response, so they decided to approach it. As they got closer, they saw that it was an old man. His eyes were blank, and he opened his mouth in a scream. Then he screamed a second time and the men took off. I would have been gone after the first scream and seeing these black eyes and an open mouth screaming. I mean, if that isn't ghost face from scream, I don't know what is. Another full-bodied apparition that's been spotted here is a woman in a red dress that is strolling through the cemetery in a joyful way. So is this our lady in red? Cue the music. (laughs) Other people have reported seeing misty figures here, too. Well, a thunderstorm just started behind me, so it's giving me some great ambiance to continue taking you through these haunted cemeteries. And our next one is Spidergate Cemetery. The Friend Cemetery in Leicester, Massachusetts is a private cemetery owned and maintained by the Quaker Worcester Friends Meeting. Most people know it by its nickname, though, Spidergate Cemetery. It acquired this name because of the unique gates that stand at its entrance. The wrought iron gates are squares with an inner circle. In the middle of the circle is a solid knot of metal that radiates out with curved lines that resemble a spider. This is a peaceful graveyard dating back to the early 1730s and has always been considered a sacred plot of land. Two Quaker families, the Potters and the Earls, were the first to settle in Leicester. The town was incorporated in 1713 and named for one of the oldest cities in England. They would set up the cemetery and have their first official burial in 1740. The largest family plot is believed to belong to the Southwick family, who joined this Quaker fellowship in 1810. 
Perhaps because of the idea that this is sacred land and its age, this is a place plagued with legends. Are any of them true? There is no proof, so it's really up to you to decide. One legend is how the gates came to be here. The story goes that a young Greek boy was depressed and hanged himself in a tree in the 1940s. His parents had the gates made inspired by the story of Arachne. Arachne was a human who was very talented at weaving. She was pretty heady about her talent and thought she could even beat the goddess Athena in a weaving contest. And she actually could back up her bravado with the real thing because she did indeed beat Athena. Well, Athena was a goddess and she wasn't having any of this. No humans beating me. How dare a mew mortal beat her? So she destroyed Arachne's tapestry and then turned on the woman and cursed her. Arachne was so despondent about this that she hanged herself. Athena felt guilty about what she'd done, so she brought Arachne back to life as the creature we now call a spider, and she goes on weaving her web everywhere, especially in my garage. So what is the truth about the gates? The original iron gates and granite posts were installed in 1895. The money to do so came from a man named Dr. Pliny Earle, and he wasn't looking for a spiderweb design. Rather, this was his take on the sun and its radiating rays. So that's what this is supposed to look like. Personally, I would rather believe that they were spiders. With gates like these, you can imagine that they would be subject to theft, and one of the gates was indeed stolen. The Southwick family paid to replace it. Holy shit! Ah! Oh, did that thunderclap scare you, Diane? <laughs> there goes the G rating on this episode. The Southwick family paid to replace it and had an exact replica made, so it looks like all the rest. So you can't tell which ones are the original and which one is the replica. Now, knowing what the gates are meant to represent, it's hard to believe that anyone would think of them as gates to hell. But another legend claims that once you pass through the gate at night, the devil himself will meet you and take your soul. Has this ever happened? How would we ever know, since the person clearly has been whisked away? Some other stories that are told here is that a young girl had been murdered here and left in a cave, but there's no cave here, so that's not possible. And there are four stone blocks in the middle of the cemetery that supposedly mark off a satanic altar, and that these Satanists have been given permission to worship here. The truth is that the old friends meeting house used to be there, and these are the four corners of that building that used to be here. So because of that, grass has a hard time growing here. Although, based on the pictures that I saw, there is grass growing there. So I don't know what that has to do with it. But there is another legend about grass that doesn't grow surrounding a grave. And this is the last resting place of Earl Marmaduke. There's a story that if you walk around the grave 10 times at midnight while asking Marmaduke to speak to you, he will speak to you. Now, in order for you to hear him, you're going to have to get down on your knees and then put your ear on the headstone so that you can hear him clearly. But in my skeptical mind, I'm imagining it could just be the blood rushing through your ears because you just walked around this grave 10 times really fast. And if you're like me and you get down that fast after you've walked around it that fast, you might actually pass out. And then you could claim that a spirit threw you down on the ground and really make this an incredible story. Obviously, because you have people who've attempted to do this, they've left a barren circle around the grave. There are people who have claimed to hear moaning, though. But I have heard a reason for this could be that there had been a farm near the cemetery that had some cows. So possibly moo sounds like a moan. There are several people who've claimed to have unexplained experiences here, one of which entailed a phantom motorcycle chasing kids from the cemetery. And the guy sounded like he really was scared by it. So I don't know 
was it a fan of motorcycle? Was it a real person on a motorcycle? They can be kind of scary too, especially if they're coming at you. Disembodied voices have been heard, and there's a strange rustling sound when there's no wind. Although this is a wooded area, so rustling. <laughs> An interesting aside is that I've heard that coins are left on headstones out of respect. I'm sure you guys have heard that too. But in this cemetery, they're actually meant to pay the toll across the river Styx. Daniel Bodilian has been to the cemetery a couple of times and written about his experiences on his blog. And he did comment that it's actually Earl Street outside of the cemetery where some unexplained and frightening experiences have happened. And I do have a link to his blog in my show notes. Daniel writes, Grown men have been known to run from this spot in terror and for no known or obvious reason. I can say based on Daniel's pictures that he has on his blog post, this is a great place to explore to see ruins of an old Quaker settlement. And our final cemetery is Oakwood Cemetery in Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas was set to be the Athens of the West in the late 1800s. The city had been a rustic cow town, but following Reconstruction, it was moving towards things that were more modern. Prior to the Civil War, the Oakwood Cemetery was established sometime in the 1850s, making it the oldest cemetery in Austin. The cemetery was not called Oakwood at the time, but rather the city cemetery. The first people to be buried in this area were earlier settlers who died in a Comanche attack. Others would slowly join them. The cemetery would officially be named Oakwood in 1907. The graveyard is laid out over 40 acres at 1601 Navasota Street, and there are around 23,000 people buried here, so this is a fairly large graveyard. There are several burials here that are considered more noteworthy, as I say all the time. I believe everyone who's buried is noteworthy, but these are people that have a little bit more fame to their name or importance, quote-unquote, in a city. One is for Richard Bach Jr. He was the grandson of Benjamin Franklin and his common-law wife, Deborah Reed. He served as a state senator for Texas in 1847 and assisted in drawing up the Texas Constitution of 1845. We also have Susanna Dickinson. She managed to survive the attack on the Alamo. She was married five times, a bit unusual for the era, and really even today, unless, of course, you're Elizabeth Taylor or Zsa Zsa Gabor. She was illiterate, so unable to give a written account of what happened at the Alamo, but she gave oral reports and saw both James Bowie and Davy Crockett dead. So pretty amazing that you had someone who managed to survive this attack, that they let her live. The infant son of O. Henry is buried here, as are several Texas governors and other politicians. One of the spirits that haunts Oakwood is believed to be General Thomas Green. Green had been a lawyer and soldier who first took part in fighting during the Texas Revolution of 1835 to 1836, serving under Sam Houston. For his efforts, he was given a land grant. When the Civil War started, he joined the Confederacy as part of the Cavalry. He led his group to victory in the Battle of Valverde and helped recapture Galveston. During the Red River Campaign, he was mortally wounded by a shell from a gunboat. He was buried in the family plot at Oakwood Cemetery. There are those who claim to see a soldier wearing a Confederate uniform wandering between the headstones, and they believe it's him. People also sometimes hear the ghostly hoofbeats of horses, and since he was a part of the cavalry as a Confederate, they put those two together and say this has got to be General Thomas Green. There are many graves for children here, as is the case in every cemetery, 
but they seem to be quite active in the afterlife. People report hearing children playing and laughing that they cannot see. There are also reports of the apparition of an old man who wanders around as though he is lost. He simply disappears after a time. Visitors also report cold spots even on hot days. Orbs show up around some of the graves, and there's a distinct feeling of uneasiness in certain parts of the cemetery. In 1884, a serial killer began to release his murderous rage in Austin. He would come to be known as the Servant Girl Annihilator. If you're a fan of true crime, you've probably heard the details of what he did. But for those of you who don't know, let me run you through the basics. This killer targeted the black servants of the rich families of Austin. Not every victim was killed. Some did survive. A black cook named Molly Smith was found dead in 1884 with a hole in her head outside of the outhouse at her employer's house. The weapon had been an axe. The axe was next used to kill cook Eliza Shelley, who was discovered dead by her children in the room where they lived. Irene Cross would be the third woman to die, but she would be killed with a knife rather than an axe, and a reporter said she had been scalped. So now we have this serial killer changing his M.O. Rebecca Ramey and her daughter would be attacked, with her daughter suffering a rape and an iron rod stabbed into her ear. Gracie Vance and her boyfriend would be murdered with an axe. Gracie was dragged to a stable and her head pounded to basically jelly. And I share that graphic detail to emphasize the rage that was involved here. How many times do you have to hit somebody to do that? Now, the sad thing is that people didn't care as much since the victims were black, but that would change in 1885 when the killer changed his M.O. and killed Sue Hancock, a white woman. And not only that, she wasn't a servant. These other ones had been servants. Her husband found her in their backyard with her head split open and an object lodged in her brain. This brings us to Eula Phillips, who was killed just an hour after Hancock in the wealthiest neighborhood in Austin. So not only do we have this killer changing his M.O., but now he's killed a second white woman within hours of the first one. Eula was a sweet and beautiful 17-year-old girl whose friends called her Luli. It was Christmas Eve night and her life was ended by an axe. She was married to a man named Jimmy and he was unconscious in their room with the gash to his head, so he was also attacked. Their child was thankfully uninjured lying next to his father. Eula was found naked, raped, and with a look of agony frozen on her lifeless face. She was buried in Oakwood Cemetery in the oldest part of the cemetery known today as the Old Grounds. She unfortunately has no headstone, and people are unsure of where she's located. Records indicate that she is indeed here, just nobody knows where. I did find one article or blog post that took a picture of the area where they thought she might be, but we can never know for sure. So here we have a victim of an infamous crime, and there's nothing there to mark her final resting place. Perhaps because of her violent death, or maybe because she has no marker, her spirit is here in the cemetery, and it's an unrest. Her full-bodied apparition has been seen roaming the cemetery.
I know many of you are taphophiles, so you probably have seen, we've had a lot of posts on the Spooktacular crew. There's been a lot of newspaper reports out there, news reports on TV about vandalism going on in cemeteries. I know this has gone on for centuries in cemeteries, but it just seems like there's been a real burst in this happening lately. And this vandalism is causing thousands of dollars in damage. In some cases, I'm sure it's racially based, particularly with a lot of the Jewish cemeteries that we've seen suffering some of this. But for the others, I really don't understand. Why do people do this? I think it's so important to teach the value of cemeteries. I love that there's those kids who put forth the effort to make sure that the first African-American firefighter in Portland got a headstone. That teaches children the value of a cemetery and memorializing people. And maybe, just maybe, if we can really emphasize how important cemeteries are and inspire young people to care about them and to take care of them, then maybe we wouldn't have as much of this vandalism going on. I sometimes wonder if these scary legends and stories were meant to keep people from doing bad things in cemeteries. Were they telling scary stories to keep kids out of them so they wouldn't be vandalizing them? It's a definite possibility. I sometimes wonder if the spirits are protecting their final resting places, and that's why we have activity going on here. They don't want you vandalizing, so if you do, they're going to haunt you. Obviously, I don't have the answers. Are these cemeteries haunted? And if so, why? That is for you to decide. Just some more cemeteries to check out. We have October coming, and there's a lot of great stuff coming in October, and you know that we're going to plan a cemetery bingo for October. We just have to. It's something to get us in the mood for Halloween, right? Get us out into those cemeteries. So be expecting to hear a little bit more on that. Love to have you check out the website at historygoesbump.com. You're going to want to do that to keep track of all the events we have going on. There's a lot coming up. It also will tell you where you can find us all over social media. And if you want to send me some feedback, a flash fiction submission, or your scary experience for the Halloween special, Please do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And I did get a few emails from you guys. I want to thank you, Joshua, for sending your email. And Perry, I want to thank you for your email. He told me that he is absolutely hooked on it and sent me a suggestion for a location. So I've added that to the list. Then I wanted to share this from Jessica. She says, my name is Jess and I'm from South Dakota. A few months ago, I stumbled across your podcast and have been listening often while at work. More recently, I introduced my husband to it and he's become enamored with it, with the fun history and haunting tales. We really enjoy the moment oddity segments. Summer brings lots of small road trips as we enjoy the South Dakota sun and fishing. We've been bouncing around the past episodes of HGB and enjoyed the one on Deadwood, South Dakota. I've always enjoyed visiting the Black Hills and have found many places outside of tourist season where the energy just feels different, usually peaceful, but sometimes leaves you wondering about the people who came before. A few years ago, we visited the Adams House in Deadwood and learned about the tragic history of the Adams family. The owner's wife, daughter, and granddaughter all died within days of each other, and there's definitely a feel that something more than meets the eye could be lingering in the home. The owner's second wife closed up the house and fled across the country, leaving the early 20th century finishings and decor completely intact. That is odd to me, and I'd love to hear what else you might dig up if you ever do an episode on it. So I definitely have added that to our list. And then listener Aaron had posted this in the Spooktacular crew over on Facebook. A small creepy. I've shared a few stories about my son before. Here's another short one from yesterday. We're sitting at our dining room table. I'm trying to get my son to name letters. Every so often he turns and looks behind him, 
Finally, he turns to me and quietly goes, monster. I asked him, what? He said again quietly, ghost on the stairs. I said, there's a ghost on the stairs? He nods. So I look up at the stairs and say, please go away. We're trying to study right now. And then we carried on with the lesson. He stopped turning around, which was nice because he already has a focusing issue. I can't say that I haven't noticed something about those stairs, but it hasn't been a problem. So I just said, well, at least it listened to her and it seems to be a friendly spirit. Found it interesting that her child called it a monster to begin with and then called it a ghost later. Very, very cool. Don't forget, coming up, we have an investigation at the Squirrel Cage Jail in Iowa, the Velisca Axe Murder House in Iowa. We have a live show in West Virginia. I'm going to be in Atlanta, Georgia on a panel for She Podcasts Live. If you are a female podcaster who wants to get more involved in podcasting or get started in podcasting, this would be a great place for you to go to learn more about that. Just check out ShePodcastsLive.com. And then we've also added... The third weekend in October, we're going to be doing an investigation at the St. Augustine Lighthouse, one of my favorite places to go. We always have something happen there. And now we're going to be doing an actual investigation there. Very excited to be doing that. For all of those investigations we have coming up, we will be doing Facebook Lives from those locations. But you got to be a part of the HGB Losers Club if you want to get in on those. It only costs you a dollar a month to get into the Losers Club here on Facebook. So consider doing that. And you're really going to want to consider doing that before Christmas comes around. Because for everybody who is supporting the show in November and then into December, I will be sending you out a Christmas card with a gift. want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. I want to thank Kathy Bolter for raising your donation. We're going to be moving you into a chest tomb, and then we want to welcome a whole bunch of you into the cemetery. We have Victoria. You're going to be getting a spot on the niche wall. Nina and Emily Kurtz, you both are going to be buried under obelisk gravestones. Cynthia Farley, Kelly Cruz, and Myra Wheeler. You are all going to be put in chest tombs. And Michael Stribal, you are going to be put into a garden crypt. Thank you all so much for signing up to help support the show. You're helping to not only put this podcast on, but to help me in my travels so that I can bring you more haunted locations on a personal basis where I've actually been there and able to go in there and investigate these places. So thank you. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.
the man from her tribe pierced the elk of the heart. The elk of the heart? Really? 